You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. The following is a recording of the Ayn Rand Institute's Philosophy for Living on Earth webinar series. Sign up to attend the next webinar live at courses.aynrand.org forward slash webinars forward slash register. Can I Take Credit for Who I Am? by Ben Baer. Welcome to Philosophy for Living on Earth, coming to you live from the Ayn Rand Institute. This is a weekly webinar series exploring life's big questions and the answers to those questions coming from the perspective of novelist philosopher Ayn Rand. My name is Ben Baer, and uh, I'm your host this week. Our big question for today is going to be, can you take credit for who you are? Now, if you haven't been to one of these before, the format for these sessions is I'm going to give a presentation for maybe around 20 minutes, then we'll open it up for Q&A and discussion. Today, I'm fortunate to be joined by my colleague, uh, senior philosopher at ARI, Ankar Gatte, who's going to moderate the Q&A and join in. By the end of today's webinar, I hope that you come away with a better grasp of what it might mean to be responsible for your character and your actions and why it matters whether you actually are. I want to start today with just giving what I think many would consider to be a clear example of somebody who does deserve credit for her actions, and especially in comparison with somebody who doesn't. So I'd like you to imagine two fictional characters. Let's call them Dagny and James. Now, they're brother and sister, so they have a lot in common. They have a common genetic lineage. They have a common upbringing. Uh, in their case, let's even imagine that they have very similar advantages in life. They've both inherited a share of responsibility for running the family business. But at one point in life, Dagny and James, their paths start to diverge. We start to see Dagny become a hard worker uh, who's very conscientious in running that family business. She then becomes practically successful in insofar as she has a control of the business, and she's happy to the extent that she sees that happening. James, on the other hand, goes a different way. He is not a hard worker. In fact, he becomes positively averse to effort. Uh, he coasts, more or less, on the success of the family in the past, and especially on Dagny on her work, and as a consequence, he becomes ridden by anxiety. I think many of you would probably agree that in a case like this, with the differences we've just talked about, it's going to look like Dagny it deserves praise for her hard work and her keeping that family business running and succeeding to the extent that it does, whereas James just doesn't. And in fact, he might even deserve blame uh, for being such a leech off Dagny and off the family's history. Now this is a, I mentioned this is a fictional example, but I'm not the one who made it up. This, these are two characters from Ayn Rand's own novel, Atlas Shrugged, and it turns out that they are gonna be really useful for illustrating her own theory of what it means to be responsible. But having set that up, imagine if looking at the differences between the two of them, James remarks, I couldn't help it. 
someone points out, you're such a leech, James. He says, I couldn't help it. In fact, in the book, he does this all the time. Maybe he even follows it by saying, you know, Dagny is just lucky uh, to have the fortitude and the work ethic that she does. Uh, I wasn't born with what she was born with. You're probably likely to see this as a pretty poor excuse. But just hypothetically speaking, what if it were true? What if James really couldn't help being the leech that he is? Would that make us more or less likely to blame James for what he does or to praise Dagny for what she does? I mean, if you were literally compelled to be this kind of moocher, as a schizophrenic might be if he's compelled to kill because of his delusions, how would you think of James? I mean, the idea of blaming somebody for what they do and praising somebody for what they do presupposes they could have in the case of blame, they could have done better, uh, but they didn't. So why didn't they? Likewise, if you're praising them, except vice versa. So if they really couldn't help it, you'd be less likely to blame James for the bad things that he does. What's interesting is that James's excuse, however poor of an excuse it might seem, is one that's actually endorsed by a lot of our cultural and political leaders. And they endorse it not just for a few unlucky people, but basically for everybody. They think that nobody can really be held responsible for their actions, for their vicious or their virtuous actions. There are some people who really think that you can't be held responsible for who you are or what you do. And I want to go through just a couple of major examples of this kind of attitude. So maybe you remember back in 2012, when President Obama uh, famously or infamously said, you didn't build that, he gave that in a speech. And that's an idea I think he was originally getting from uh, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, who's now running for president. What they were referring to at the time was that uh, successful business people don't build the roads or bridges, the infrastructure that they run their trucks on so that they can become successful. And the idea was, well, therefore, they should be uh, made to pay more taxes to pay the cost of what they themselves didn't build. But even before Obama popularized that idea, there were philosophers and other cultural leaders who were making that kind of point, but in a more general way, which I think actually probably influenced this rhetoric. And the idea was, look, even if you did go out and build the roads and bridges, uh, you did it because you have a certain kind of work ethic certain drive to succeed. And the philosopher's idea is, well, you didn't build your work ethic. You're not responsible for developing your character. You didn't build your soul. Why do you have the character you have? Well, it's because your parents, your society, your upbringing instilled these uh, characteristics into you. It's some combination of either your inborn nature or uh, your upbringing that is your nurture that makes you who you are. And what this attitude does is it denies the possibility that you're really the one who built who you are and that therefore you deserve the fruits of your labor. And, and that's, what, that's the consequence that many philosophers drew from this idea. And a big example here is uh, Harvard philosopher John Rawls. I think it's worth pointing out that this is not just a secular sort of scientific sounding idea. It's an idea that we see uh, coming from uh, the religious sector of our culture as well. Maybe you've heard the phrase, all good things come from above. 
that's an idea that's used by many religious thinkers, but I have in mind in particular uh, St. Augustine, who used basically this idea and his arguments against certain heretics who thought that we, de we deserve the reward for our own virtue. Augustine's idea was you can't earn your way into heaven by your good works. It's, it's really God's grace that determines that. And while there was a way in which he thought we were responsible for the bad things that we do, I mean, his idea was all good things come from God, but bad things, those come from people. But even when the bad things come from people, it's only because we have an evil nature. That's the whole idea of original sin. And we can't help but have this evil nature, they thought. And so, in effect, this idea often ends up being used as an excuse uh, for the so-called sins that people commit. You and, and the real abuses that they commit, as in, for example, the recent Catholic Church sex abuse crisis, where it was, we were often reminded by the church, these priests, they're only human, and they deserve forgiveness as well. They couldn't help what they were doing, in effect. But again, what this feud ends up doing is, is to leave out uh, individual people's responsibility for their virtues and vices. So what's interesting is that coming from both the religious and secular sectors of our culture, we see a, a skepticism and sometimes uh, an outright rejection of the very idea of free will, of the idea that you have the power to control your actions and that you can then be the one who's held accountable for them. Instead, what these critics either sympathize with or outright affirm is some version of the idea of determinism, the view that all of your actions are necessitated by some prior events, whether genetic or environmental or supernatural or both or all. And what's, I hope, clear by now is that if you endorse that thesis of determinism, it does end up transforming or even possibly negating uh, your, what, the kind of concept of justice that we started with, the idea that there's an important difference between what Dagny and James deserve. You're not in control of your actions. You can't earn the fruits of your labor, and you also can't warrant punishment for your crimes. At most, what's offered uh, is sometimes called social justice, the idea that, well, society needs to take away the unearned rewards and the undeserved punishments from the people who've received them. Uh, how can society be held responsible when its members can't? Good question. But I mean, I think the main question that I want to ask today is, is this deterministic thesis actually true? It's definitely true that there's a lot about ourselves that we don't control. We don't control the very fact that we were born. We didn't choose that. We didn't choose what kind of genes we're going to be born with, or what kind of brain, what kind of parents, or in what kind of society. All of these are truly givens. But the question is going to be, does, does the fact that we can't control our origins, does that mean that we can do nothing to control our future? I don't think it does mean that, uh, and neither did Ayn Rand. And I want to now present some uh, basic elements of her view. I want to, to, to show you why she opposes every kind of determinism. Uh, I want to start actually by presenting, uh, by looking again at the example of, of Dagny from the beginning, uh, who of course is a character in her book. 
And so it's true about Dagny that, that she doesn't control everything about her past. Uh, she doesn't just, and, and more than that, uh, the work ethic that she exhibits through the story, she doesn't just will that into existence out of nothing. But, but the, I don't think that means, and she's not, it's not illustrated in a way that shows that she's not responsible for it in a more uh, indirect kind of way. So consider some plausible ways in which she might have developed this work ethic. What does it mean to have a work ethic? It means something like you, you enjoy working hard. You like how it makes you feel. And so she works because she feels excited about a challenge, about, um, about taking on new opportunities. She's revolted by the idea of coasting, just going through the motions. And it's true that that feeling she has toward her work is also not something she just wills out of nothing. In part, it comes from a belief that she has, a belief that she has that, that work is a good thing, that it adds meaning to life, that it adds value to life. And that belief is also not something she just willed into existence. It's one that she would have formed over the course of her lifetime, in large part after having done some work that's paid off for her and she's seen the results and she's seen how it's added to her life. Um, how did she get that belief? How did she do that work in the first place? Why did she do it? Well, I think there uh, you can still give another explanation. And it's something like, well, she was curious. She wanted to see what would happen when she tried working hard. She wanted to see what possibilities there are in life to exploit. She, she wanted to learn something about herself and about the world that she lives in. But now we get, I think, to the really fundamental question. Why did she choose that? Why did she want to learn about the world? Why does, she keep, why does she keep choosing to learn about the world through the course of her life and developing and strengthening this work ethic? Is it because there's just some stimulus from her neurons that made her want to learn? Or did she really actually just choose it? where she herself is responsible and it's not because of any antecedently determined reason. Ayn Rand had a theory of this, a, a view of how we make this kind of fundamental choice. And she actually presents her theory in the same novel I've been talking about uh, in a passage of a speech that another character gives. And what I wanna do now is to just look at a segment of that speech. I'm gonna give you three little snippets and just comment on the nature of the view that you can see in this, in this segment. So here's the first little passage. The character in the speech says, to think is an act of choice. Reason does not work automatically. Thinking is not a mechanical process. The connections of logic are not made by instinct. Now, right there, that's already a statement of her opposition to determinism. She's saying that choice to learn about the world, that choice to think, to engage one's reason and one's thought is not something that happens automatically. It's not something that's just programmed into you. But of course, the big question is, how does she know this is true? And the very next snippet uh, offers, I think, part of the answer. Here's the, Here's the next snippet. Character says, the function of your stomach, lungs, or heart is automatic. The function of your mind is not. In any hour and issue of your life, you're free to think or to evade that effort. And what I think is interesting about this passage is it's, it's pointing to how 
your knowledge of your own responsibility is something that you can discover just by looking into your own soul, introspecting into your own psychology. And if you observe, there is there is a real introspectable difference between uh, something like the automatic functioning of your body in certain respects, like your heart and your lungs, as opposed to your thinking. So just try for a moment, if you want, uh, try to control the rate at which your heart beats through sheer exercise of will, not by going out for a run, but just like, I want to make my heart beat faster. I think you'll find you can't do it. But here's something that you can control, paying attention to your heartbeat or to your breathing. Most of the day, we don't pay attention to our breathing at all. If you stop right now and take a deep breath, you can, you can be aware of it. And that's a choice. And there's a big difference between those two. And what's, what's volitional, what's a matter of our free will choice for Rand is more than just any paying attention to any particular thing, but the broader question of committing to paying attention to reality, committing to knowing reality or not in order to live in it. Now, of course, the determinists, critics that we've been talking about will say, well, this difference is just an illusion. Uh, they might say, for instance, that neuroscience tells us that all of our decisions, including our decisions to learn about the world, are, are stimulated by brain activity. Now, I don't think they really have evidence for this view. And if you want to ask me about that in the q and I can say more about it. Uh, you could also ask me about how I don't think they ever could find evidence that the choice to think is something that's just determined by our brains. But again, for more on that, ask me questions in the Q&A. Let me show you now just the very last snippet of this passage of the speech. Uh, the segment ends, for you who are a human being, the question to be or not to be is the question to think or not to think. And here, what I think the character and uh, also Ayn Rand's indicating is that it's, it's the extent to which you make this choice to focus on the world and to try to learn about it. It's to that extent that you determine the kind of person you're going to be in life. Uh, this is her idea that man is a being of a self-made soul. And I want to try now to illustrate just how those connections work, again, by reference to the comparison uh, between Dagny and James, how they come to be the kind of people they are through the kinds of choices they make with their minds. I've already, I think, illustrated that uh, in large part with the example of Dagny. So it's useful to now compare her uh, to James and why they diverge. Early on, when he's confronted by certain kinds of facts that he finds uncomfortable, he doesn't want to look at them. He doesn't want to examine them. For instance, he meets a person who's of great ability. And rather than, say, trying to figure out how is it that this person acquired these abilities, what are the causes, he just resents the fact that the person has more ability than he does. And so through uh, a series of similar choices like that, he, he becomes characteristically passive and uncritical uh, about the views that he accepts. Um, he, at any point, he could start being more critical, but he doesn't. And as a result, he comes, he comes to hate people who are critical, people who ask questions, people who figure things out, people who exercise and develop their intellectual abilities. He hates thinkers and destroyers, and he comes to want to destroy them. And that's why it looks like he's a pretty bad guy. Um, Rand's view was that by continually, continually choosing to think 
or not, one way or the other in your life, that's the way that you craft the kind of soul that you have. Uh, your choices about how you and how and whether you choose to think, they influence your attitude toward your, uh, your universe in which you live, your attitude toward yourself. And uh, this then gels into a general implicit philosophy of life and, and a moral character, which ends up influencing your actions. And of course, this is a fictional example I've been giving, but uh, if, if you're curious, I can tell you more in the Q&A about uh, real brothers and sisters, real twins, and how they turn out differently in life in spite of all these similarities. So the point here, I think the cash value of this view of how we form our character is, I hope, uh, a better picture of what it really means to earn something, what it means uh, to earn something as a matter of justice. To earn something, to earn a reward, you don't need to be the one to create it out of nothing, which means, of course, creating yourself out of nothing. Nobody can do that. We all start with many givens in life. What it is to earn something is uh, to make certain choices with what you're given. What you earn depends on what you choose to do with what you've given. And even though Dagny and James uh, begin with the same basic givens, they choose to do very different things with them. So I think that's what justice is really all about. Uh, and this isn't, by the way, just a point about comparing two people who start with the same things. You could compare somebody who starts with less than James and somebody who still makes better choices than James, even though he started with less and deserves more. If you read Atlas, you'll discover more about Eddie Willers. He's kind of like that. Or vice versa, somebody who makes better choices, even though they start with a lot, then somebody who starts with little and who makes bad choices and justice differentiates between all of those kinds of people. So let me give you then just a couple of major takeaways uh, from this uh, session, I hope that you got. First, why this question makes a difference, why it matters, that it seems like we deserve praise or blame only to the extent that we actually choose virtuous and vicious actions. That's, I think, a point that a lot of people are agreed on. The question is whether we actually do make these choices. And in Rand's view, we do. Fundamentally, she thinks the way we control our lives is by choosing to think or not with respect to what's given in life. And that then has influence on your beliefs, your feelings, your moral character, uh, and as a result, the actions and what you, what you deserve because of them. I do want to leave you with just a few uh, suggested readings. Um, I've been talking a lot today about Atlas Shrugged, but uh, uh, Ayn Rand's other two novels have a fair amount to say about her view of free will, uh, both Anthem and The Fountainhead, but there's really quite a lot uh, in Atlas Shrugged, not just the characters who illustrate the different choices that in end up uh, determining one's character, but also the whole explicit theory of uh, free will and responsibility that I've been discussing is presented in in a speech toward the end of the book. Uh, also wanted to mention some uh, online resources, uh, some essays and videos that you could take a look at if you wanna learn more about this. Uh, there's an essay by Ayn Rand called The Metaphysical Versus the Man-Made, which is available on ARI's website. There's a link to it there. Hopefully uh, someone will put the links uh, in the chat. Uh, this is where she develops some important applications of her view of uh, how we make choices that guide our life. 
my colleague Ankar, who's going to be with us in a minute, has a really great uh, short video uh, further developing this concept of uh, volitional responsibility called Seize the Reins of Your Mind. Uh, I recently published an article in our online publication, New Ideal, where I uh, say more about defending the idea that we really have the kind of free will that Ayn Rand thinks that we have. And I will mention just one last piece, which is a, a more of a scholarly article, but it's, it's one uh, by some people I know that, that uh, lays down some important knowledge we have from psychology and from uh, the field of behavioral genetics that shows how there's room in uh, the scientific worldview for the kind of free will and moral responsibility that I've been that I've been talking about. Uh, mm -hmm. So, do want to remind you about next week's uh, webinar. This is going to be one uh, presented by my colleague uh, Aaron Smith, also a fellow at Ayn Rand Institute. Should I follow my head or my heart? This is actually going to be on a topic that came up today about the way in which uh, our beliefs influence our feelings and the character that comes from that. You can register for that webinar by using one of these links. Um, if you are listening, it's uh, bit.ly slash ARI hyphen webinars. And if you have ideas for, uh, let us know if you have any big questions you'd like us to take up in future episodes. We're, we're really interested in hearing what kinds of life questions you have. Goal of these webinars is to explore the answers to life's big questions from the point of view of Ayn Rand's philosophy. So let us know if you have questions you'd like us to talk about and send those ideas to webinars at aynrand.org. Um, otherwise, uh, I think now is the time where we will start to consider questions from the audience. Uh, the best way to do that is to use the Q&A box that's at the bottom of your screen on Zoom. If you, if you hover over your screen, press that button, there'll be a place for you to submit questions. Uh, and I'm shortly to be joined by Ankar Gatte, who's gonna be uh, moderating those questions. Ankar, are you out there? Yes, hi, Ben. Hi, Ankar. Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks. I posted the links in the chat, Ben, but uh, you slacked them to me, and it, the formatting didn't work super well. So if you oh, have a better formatted version, you could. Not all the URLs actually are linked. Yet. I will see if I can. Yeah, I was uh, trying to fix it, but I didn't quite succeed. Well, let me turn um, my screen share off. Yeah, let's get. Which will help me do that. Uh, there we go. Yeah. And um, did you want to do the poll? Oh, right. Sorry. That didn't make it onto my uh, slides for some reason. Um, thank you for reminding me. So this is a poll we uh, give just to see more about who's watching, uh, to find out what your familiarity with Ayn Rand's uh, writings and ideas uh, are. We want to know if we're reaching out to newer people. Uh, uh, and hopefully we are. So I'll let this run for just a little while. In the meantime, um, Ankar, if you want to yeah, let's get share one of the questions with me. Yes, here's one. Um, so you brought up the distinction between free will and determinism early on in your presentation. This question is about can you have the issue of soft determinism and the, uh, the viewpoint of Ayn Rand's philosophy about soft determinism. Yeah, this is a question that comes up a lot. And you may have noticed in my presentation that I, I said there's really just two views. There's free will 
versus determinism, there are a lot of philosophers, looks like my, my posting didn't do much better, sorry about that. There are a lot of philosophers who think you don't have to choose between these two views. They say you can think determinism might be true, might be true that all of our actions are a result of genetics and environment, but still they think there's a sense in which we have free will. Uh, and this is actually a very popular view among people uh, who are sympathetic to determinism. And it makes sense that they would be sympathetic because throwing out free will is a really big price to pay. It means you can't in any way hold people responsible for their actions. Uh, and that's a, there's a lot that would come from that. And so the way that these so-called soft determinists will work, sometimes uh, they're also called compatibilists. Those aren't quite the same idea, but they're very closely related. What they'll do is basically offer a different definition of free will than I think the one that most of us have in mind. And when I talk about free will, I put it as your ability to control your actions. And I mean that in a very robust way. I mean, in any given moment, you are free to either engage your mind or not. You're, uh, you're capable of being one thing or another. There's a real alternate possibility. And so what the compatibilists or the soft determinists will say is, uh, all that it means to be free is, well, uh, you're not really being constrained by any external forces. You're not a prisoner. You're not in jail. You're not a slave. You're not uh, subject to coercion of any kind. Uh, and that is an important sense of freedom. It's something like the sense of political freedom that we that objectivists think is really important. Uh, Ankar, you seem to have frozen. I'm, hopefully, I'm not. Oh, there you're back. Uh, but that's not the yeah, same I kind of freedom that that I think most people mean when they talk about free will, the kind that they think makes them responsible for their actions. Uh, real, what we call metaphysical freedom, means the ability to do otherwise. And there are even more sophisticated uh, compatibilists who try to redefine that concept. I won't get into that. But uh, long story short, I, I think that these so-called soft determinists or compatibilists, they're they're changing the subject by redefining the word. It's not what people mean. It's not what's important about the concept of freedom. Uh, and it, it ends up being a kind of evasion that distracts us from the fundamental question. Um, and in that article of mine that I uh, posted, the one about why champions of reason and science need free will, uh, the kind of free will I'm definitely talking about is the, the robust alternative possibility kind that, that part of what a reverence for science and reason means is that you're saying you could be scientific, you could be unscientific, and we revere the scientists who make the choice to do one rather than the other. And there's not really any way to make sense of the idea of scientific objectivity without that alternative. Did you want to say anything more about that issue? Uh, no, I think that, that, that covers it. But here, okay. here's a question that's related right to the last point you were making which is about the, I mean, you can put it very broadly, the relationship of science to this issue. So, but the question is, can neuroscience prove the non-existence of free will? Or you might even ask it, has neuroscience proved the non-existence of free will, which, a lot of, which is what a lot of people think. Yeah, that was, I think, an email question that we got earlier from, from Barry, I believe. And it's a good question. Um, there's a lot of different allegations that are made about why neuroscience does this. Um, I'll just mention one of the more popular allegations, uh, and it's one that I talk about in that article I mentioned before. Um, there is a series of experiments that were done by a fellow named Benjamin Libet, 
Uh, and what they basically do is to <clears throat> uh, measure certain activity in somebody's brain uh, as they're being asked to perform certain kinds of random tasks, like uh, tell a person to go in and spontaneously flick their wrist. And what's true is that they'll measure certain kind of unconscious brain activity, a uh, certain number of microseconds, can't remember exactly how many, before the person uh, records being aware of the conscious decision to flick their wrist. And that's very interesting. Uh, and uh, there's nothing, and I think it's a well-replicated experiment. But I think that basically the people who are doing those kinds of experiments to look for free will are looking in the wrong place and in the wrong way. Um, because part of, and part of what's really distinctive about Ayn Rand's theory of free will is that the, the things that we have the most direct and fundamental control over in life are not just kind of random actions of our appendages. It's, it's the control that we have over our minds and over managing our minds. Uh, this is not something that's being uh, measured by these experiments, and it would be really difficult for any experiment to do that. And a point that you've, I think, uh, brought out in conversation before, uh, Ankar, is that it's, it's an interesting question of who should actually be surprised by the results of these experiments. Uh, you would only be surprised by them if you thought that uh, free will was some kind of uh, mystical, supernatural entity that sort of hovered outside of your body and uh, had an influence on it directly. But of course, uh, it, the kind of free will that I'm talking about and that I think Rand is talking about is it's a, it's a faculty of, uh, of, your, of your body and your brain and arises from that. And so of course, when you make a decision, it's going to be mediated by certain kinds of uh, uh, neural processes, but the, the decision that gets mediated by certain kinds of unconscious brain activity is going to be something that happens prior to that. When you decide to get involved with the experiment, when you sit down and say, no, I'm really going to take this experiment seriously. So that's one example of how I think uh, these kinds of neuro experiments are just looking in the wrong place. Um, they often are. Most of, most of the ones that work that way are, are, are measuring similar kinds of choices. And more than that, I, I think this is something I alluded to before. There's a question of whether there ever could be any kind of evidence that would deny the kind of free will that we're talking about. If what free will is, is the power to control your mind for better or worse, the choice to be rational or irrational, the choice to be scientific or unscientific, that's a choice that the whole apparatus of science presupposes. And in thinking that there's a norm of scientific objectivity. It presupposes that you can make that choice. Uh, if there weren't such a choice, how could somebody ever know that they're being scientific? How could they know that they're assessing the data objectively as opposed to being subject to some kind of confirmation bias? They couldn't because the only way that you can know that is if you yourself make the choice to do the right thing as opposed to the wrong thing and that you know that you made that choice. Did yeah. you want to add anything there? And that was, I think, part of the, the quote you put up from Ayn Rand in the presentation. That's part of what she's emphasizing when, when it's the functioning of your lungs, heart, so on, is automatic. The function of your mind is not. The whole, our whole conception of a 
reasoning mind is you're making choice after choice after choice to guide it towards the truth. And your contrast between Dagny and James is one of them does that, tries to push facts out of minds. So our whole conception of reason is that it operates by, and volitional is just a fancy word that it operates by choice. I think that's important. And the other point you brought up, I think it's that is relevant for thinking this, their conception of free will, this non-causal mystical, it's every time they get more data about, no, the mind is natural, not Ankar, you're cutting out quite a lot. I wonder if it would help if you turned your video off and just used audio for the time being, because I'm actually having a hard time hearing you too. That's better. I can hear you smoothly now. Okay, so let me do it. Let me just, I'm not going to try to say too much of my, let's take another question. Sure. Which, again, related to something you brought up in the presentation. So they're asking you to comment on this. So the idea that you can't take credit for your success because it's owed to all the other people that created things before you, it's owed to your surrounding, your parents, et cetera. Which question is this? I'm just so I can, you should give me the first name, I think, so I know which one you're talking about. Oh, yeah, sorry, Naveen. Naveen's question. I mean, so there's several things to say here. I mean, first of all, it's, of course, true that you are given a lot in life by, you know, for anybody. People have different advantages they're born with, whether they're levels of intelligence or the conscientiousness of their parents or the wealth that their parents have. And not only do you not control that, but you can't take credit for it. I mean, it's something that your parents can take credit for. But, I mean, there's, so I think there's two categories of things. There's things that you can't take credit for because nobody can take credit for them because they are accidents of nature. And there are things that you can't take credit for because somebody else can take credit for, as in how well of a job your parents did in raising you. Now, the first category of things where nobody can take credit, these are just, these are things that just don't even enter into questions about justice at all. And for that very reason, since they're not things that anybody has any control over, the realm of justice and the realm of morality more generally is one that only concerns what people have control over. So again, that's a question of how do you, how do you, justice is about what you do with what you're given. Now, as for the things where somebody does get to take credit, like your parents, what happens then? Well, I mean, I think in such cases as that, if you have really good parents, you do 
owe them some gratitude for having done a good job. I mean, they could have done uh, a, you know, a basic minimal job, uh, but if they actually took their parenting seriously, you should say thank you. And there are ways in life in which we can repay our parents uh, for the good things that they've done. Usually just uh, being successful yourself is all that your parents are looking for uh, by way of thanks. Um, but there are sometimes other ways. But the idea then that because we owe some things to our parents, therefore we owe something to society uh, more generally is, is really perverse. I mean, for one thing, your parents didn't do for you what they did because they wanted you to then be in debt to the rest of society. They wanted you uh, to be successful uh, for your own sake. Um, it's, it's also true that there are things that we are provided by the government, uh, which we didn't ourselves uh, ask for, but it's very relevant that we didn't ask for them. We've been you know, given roads and bridges that we didn't ask for. Those could have been uh, things that we paid for if they had been private. Uh, and I mean, I would argue, and I think Ayn Rand would too, that we should have been offered that option. You can't, you know, give somebody, you can't provide somebody with a benefit and say, now you've got to pay me for it. That's the move of a mobster. That's, that's an extortion racket where you give them protection and they say, now you better pay up. Uh, that, and yet that's basically the same kind of idea that politicians are, are using when they make this kind of argument. Did you want to say any more about that? Uh, no, I think I, I think uh, there's some issue with my connection, so I'm not going to try. I think okay. I'll just try to moderate, but not spend okay. too much time. On it. Um, okay, so let's take another related to the the science issue. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, Danilo or Danilo. Um, and it's the second one. So it seems that science always reduces phenomena to physical causation. But if choices are not reducible to physiological, doesn't that ne necessitate a supernatural explanation? That's a good question. And I think that it's, it's one that uh, is, is prompted by uh, a very common view of uh, what uh, scientific accounts of causation look like. Um, it's assumed by almost everybody in this debate that uh, what it means to say that some effect has a cause is that something was caused by some prior event or action. And if that's all that there is to causation, then the idea that there are things that we do where we could do one thing or the other in a given moment would indeed seem strange. Uh, I don't see why it would in any way necessitate uh, some kind of supernatural presence, but it, it would at least uh, seem to uh, violate some common presuppositions about science and causality. But I think what's, what's really important, and this is again something that I address uh, at a certain stage in a certain section of my recent article, is that that is dealing with an overly narrow conception of, of cause and effect. And, and actually, uh, a historically idiosyncratic one. Um, this is a view, the idea that cause and effect are only relationships between uh, something that happens now and something that happened before, like one billiard ball being struck by another. It's only been 
a popular understanding of causation since around the time of the Renaissance. But if you think about it, uh, there's a broader notion uh, and one that had been uh, seriously uh, uh, understood by many philosophers and scientists prior to that, which is the idea that no, cause and effect isn't necessarily a relation that happens in time. It's, it can be a simultaneous relationship between the nature of an action and the nature of the entity that is undertaking the action. I mean, a simple example, and this is not even about human actions, but like I'm holding this mouse and it's my, it's my hand that's holding it up. My hands holding this mouse up is something that ha is, is a fact that's simultaneously present to the, the mouse is being held up. Uh, it's not like first my hand operates in a way and then the mouse is held up. It's simultaneous. And I think that there are, I think all causal relationships ultimately can be understood in that way, not just human uh, actions. But then, especially when we're talking about human actions, uh, it's still true that the, our capacity for choice is something that is uh, not just caused, but even necessitated by our nature. If we are a rational being with a conceptual faculty, we constantly have to choose uh, about focusing our minds or not. And then it is true that, that there's something distinctive about this kind of action. It's different from the actions of other uh, inanimate objects, which is that there is this alternate possibility involved. But I don't think there's anything that we know uh, from science, nor could there be anything that we know from science, that, that dictates that causality has to be uh, a, a relationship of necessitation. Uh, what we know is that even uh, though we face alternate possibilities, they are, it's a narrow range of possibilities. We can't just do anything we want to. Um, there's a finite set of possibilities to us that's dictated by our finite nature. And I mean, I think one thing that's definitely true about contemporary physics, and it's hard to interpret the latest results of what's observed on the quantum level, but it's at least not at all obvious that the only way to understand even the physical universe is, is through a kind of mechanistic lens where everything is necessitated billiard ball-like by prior events. Um, so it's true that, uh, I think in the view of free will we're talking about, uh, your choices are not necessitated by any kind of physiological state. That doesn't mean uh, that it's a supernatural capacity. Uh, all it means is that you have a, there are real alternate possibilities that you face that are themselves determined by the nature of your body and your brain. And if, uh, if the brain is not functioning properly, if you go to sleep, if you die, uh, obviously you don't you don't face that choice anymore and you become just like another hunk of inanimate matter. I hope that answers uh, Danilo's uh, question. Was it Danilo? Yeah, that was Danilo. Um, here's another question. It relates, I think, a little bit to, you brought up Atlas Shrugged in your presentation. Um, so I'll rephrase the question a little bit. This is from Sally. Uh, do and it's thinking of the issue of, of responsibility. So do CEOs like Steve Jobs, what, what would you say about the kind of claim that it, they didn't really create Apple because they have hundreds of not that really the ones responsible for the success of the 
your your voice cut out a little bit there, but I think what you were saying was they can't really be responsible for creating things because they have hundreds, if not thousands, of employees working under them. I see Sally's question. Yeah, so it's um, I mean, cer again, certainly true that uh, that Steve Jobs doesn't create the iPhone out of nothing. He's depending on the work of a lot of other people in, in just the same way as as though for different reasons as uh, we depend on our parents when we grow up. But what's important here, there's, I think, two things that are really big. Um, one is, and I think this is the less important point, that uh, those people are paid for their work. It, that's why they go to work where they work. They want to make a certain living from it. They enjoy the process. And Steve Jobs is, first of all, instrumental in making sure they get paid. Uh, and he, he he's paying them and they're engaging in a trade. But I think the more important point, uh, and this is a point that relates not just to questions about uh, justice, but uh, a number of other uh, questions about why capitalists deserve to be free and why they aren't exploiting their workers. These are kinds of questions that comes up, come up for, you know, with Marxist types. The fact is that there is an indispensable role that somebody like Steve Jobs plays in organizing and integrating the work of all of the people working under him. And this is true, I think, of many uh, CEOs and executives. You can have all the people with all the same skills, even if they have access to all the same resources. But if somebody doesn't have a central organizing vision uh, of what they want to do with these people, it won't add up to anything and there won't be fruits left to redistribute for, or for anyone to claim that they really deserve them. And I think this is really actually clear in the case of someone like Steve Jobs because uh, he left the company, uh, Apple, and Apple went kind of downhill even though it had all the same resources and people. And then he came back and, and, and really brought it back to life. Uh, and then he died, and Apple has again um, kind of gone back to uh, being a shell of its former self. And obviously, that's that's a little bit exaggerated because they're still doing good things. But there's there's a real role to be played by by people of genius who have great ability, and, and that is an ability that they have to exercise volitionally. And it, and they it's their choices that they're in a position to make that other people aren't in a position to make. And um, this is a big, big. This is an idea that Ayn Rand herself elaborated on in a, another section of that same speech that I was quoting from in the presentation, uh, where she talks about a pyramid of ability. And if anyone's interested, they can Google "pyramid of ability," and uh, you'll come up with, I think, pages from the Ayn Rand lexicon, which is hosted by the Ayn Rand Institute, and that'll give you more on that idea. Okay, Ankar, you still there? You got another one for me? Uh, thanks, Ben. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is from Stephen. It was one of the earlier ones, so it'll be at the top for you, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and this is, it's about the issue of nurture, which is, uh, I mean, as you know, uh, a popular way of thinking about the issue of determinism. So it's, um, I'll, I'll read part of the question. It's how to think about the relationship of so it's he thinks about a reasoning process involves a balance of nature and nurture can you address how thinking in a rational way 
to reach values impacts your and nurture. <clears throat> and I think one question, like if we step back a little bit, is it right to think about your life in terms of a balance of nature and nurture? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not totally sure if I totally get that question. Um, but what I can imagine the person might be thinking is, you know, to make it a little bit more concrete, something like, well, you know, I've got a certain amount of intelligence. Um, I've also had to deal with a certain kind of environment growing up. Uh, so, for instance, maybe somebody is really smart, but they had bad parents who were abusive to them. And so the person's thinking, well, how do I, how do I, is there a way I can leverage my intelligence, for instance, to, to um, you know, deal with the fact that I've had a bad upbringing. I don't know if I would put that as balancing nature and nurture, um, but I, mean, I do think it's true that, that part of the function of free will is, is to decide what, do you, what use do you make of either of those factors. Um, and yeah, I often think even that, that there's, uh, too much made even of this distinction to begin with, as if certain kinds of things like intelligence just fall automatically into nurture. And, uh, uh, that's not even obvious because while it's certainly true that some component of your intelligence is going to be, uh, inherited, I mean, your brain is inherited <laughs> from your parents. And so there are going to be certain physiological capacities of your brain, but it's, it's far from obvious that your intelligence is fixed. I think there's a lot of evidence uh, that uh, if anybody knows about the Flynn effect. Uh, this is the observed increase in base IQ in populations all over the planet, which can't be accounted for by sort of sampling errors. It's, it seems like people are getting smarter uh, uh, and is it because uh, their environment is improving? Is it because certain people are making choices that improve their environment? Uh, I think the latter is probably the most uh, likely explanation. So um, even the environment then is not easy to separate from, uh, from people's choices since people affect the environment with their choices. And you can have different political systems, which are the product of different people's choices about what they think is the right way to govern a society. And uh, political systems where there's more freedom are going to produce more prosperity and give people uh, more opportunities to be educated. And once they're given those opportunities, they can either choose to ignore them or not. So it's, uh, again, I wouldn't quite put it as balancing nature and nurture, but the kinds of factors that people talk about when, uh, they mean that when they talk about that. I think it's true that the main function of your free will is to figure out how best to optimize uh, what you're given. And there's lots of ways that that then has effects on those factors. Uh, again, I'm not quite sure if I interpreted the question correctly. I don't know if you had thoughts you wanted to share, but uh, that's what I got on that one. Um. Well, I'll give you another question that I think might be, it's in, in the same ballpark. I don't think it's the same question, okay. but it, it's an interesting question. It's submitted anonymous. I don't know, it, but it's, um, and I'll just take part of it. Um, do you think it might be problematic to believe that too much of a person's behavior is, is 
you're cutting out again, but I see the part of the question you're talking about. Do you think it might be similarly problematic to believe too much of a person's behavior is uh, volitional? And I, I think that, yeah, it might be problematic. And it's, it's important that even, even in a philosophic view that says there is a big and important difference between what's automatic, like our, you know, the beating of our heart and the, um, our breathing, as opposed to what's volitional, which is which is our, our choice to think. Even when it's important that there's that difference, it's not always obvious where the line between those two factors is. Uh, this is one of the things that Ayn Rand talks about in that essay that I posted, the metaphysical versus the man-made. Um, I mean, even something like your heartbeat. I mean, it's true that in the moment you can't will it to be uh, faster or slower, but obviously people have heart conditions, for instance, that will uh, that can result from bad dietary habits or from smoking. And that's a way in which your choice affects uh, what would otherwise be, seem to be something that's not in your control. Uh, and so it's always important to be on the lookout for, you know, are you thinking clearly about what is up to you and what isn't? And that's Ayn Rand starts that essay, Metaphysical versus the Man-Made, with with this, uh, this old serenity prayer of having and you know, accepting the things that you cannot change, changing the things that you can, and having the wisdom to know the difference. And it does take an amount of wisdom to know uh, the difference. And you know, so there are cases where people can get all uh, riled up uh, blaming somebody for uh, having certain kind of character traits when it, it may well be that they, they can't help it. Um, I mean, most obvious example is something like someone's a paranoid schizophrenic and it's because of some organic brain, brain disorder, disorder which they may have inherited. Uh, and that's the kind of clear case of somebody you can't really hold responsible for their actions. But there's a lot of other shades of gray between that and clear-cut volitional actions. Um, you know, somebody's physical appearance, is there's only so much they can control about it. There's certainly going to be aspects of one's psychology that one doesn't have immediate control over, or if one did have control over it at some point, it was only when they were very young and they were making certain kinds of choices because of the environment they were growing up in, and maybe they could have chosen differently, but it would have been very difficult, and that ends up having an effect on their psychology going forward. Um, so yeah, it's, it's important to try to be wise about knowing the difference uh, when you're judging people, because uh, it's, it's not the case that everything is something that we are in control of and you have to think about what uh, what there is and what there isn't that we directly control. Um, uh, we have two minutes left so I yeah. think this will be the last question then you can wrap up Ben sure. um, and it's from Emily and it's it's related to some of the questions we, we've been taking. Um, does IQ play a role when it comes to siblings, uh, so it's going back to your first example, who grew up in the same environment but make different choices in regards to whether or not to be a producer or a leech. Let me just look at that one more time. Well, I mean, it's definitely possible for uh, siblings to be born with different IQs uh, and uh, Obviously, there's there's going to be, I think, more genetic similarities between siblings. They're more likely to have similar IQ, but it's certainly not um, something that's uh, definitive. And so I, I think the broader question here 
is what the differences what differences do differences in IQ make, whether your siblings or not? I mean, does the fact that one person is smarter than another person uh, make a difference for the choices that they make about uh, becoming a producer or a leech? Um, I don't think so. Uh, I think that um, you know somebody who's smarter who can process information more quickly is obviously going to have uh, there's more things that they can do productively uh, and somebody who's not as smart might not but uh, I I also don't think that that's that's what makes the difference for whether you're a producer or a leech you can be very productive uh, at uh, at what you might otherwise call menial tasks there can be people who are better or worse at being a taxi driver a truck driver uh, delivery person, um, and they can be better or worse uh, based on the choices that they made about the kinds of responsibilities that they assume and the, and the kind of growth mentality that they adopt about their job. And are they moving forward? Are they trying to new, do new and better things within the limits of their ability, or are they kind of stagnating and, and just going through the motions? And so it's, I mean, it's true that, uh, that people with greater intelligence, there's more options to them available in, in the sense of more ways that they could grow. Uh, but I don't think that it makes a difference uh, for whether they have the option to be productive or a leech. That's, I think, an option that's available to anyone, uh, regardless of their level of IQ, you know, within certain limits, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, again, mentally damaged so much that you can't uh, actually operate like a human being, then you wouldn't really have that choice. But that's a rare kind of thing. Um, and I'll just say, I mean, I referenced this in the talk, but I think you see these differences illustrated in Atlas Shrugged. You see, you know, somebody like Dagny as opposed to somebody like Eddie. Eddie is not a genius uh, in the way that, uh, you know, Dagny or other characters might be, but he's still portrayed as making better choices with the intelligence that he has. And that limits him in certain ways, but uh, it doesn't limit uh, his ability to form his moral character. And I also mentioned that I wrote an article that touches on some of these issues uh, a few months back in New Ideal um, about the Israeli philosopher Yuval Harari, who's worried that um, the robots are going to replace all of the people who have lower IQs. And I give some interesting examples, I think, of ways in which um, people living in an advanced modern society, advanced technological society, uh, are actually given more options with the things that they can do um, by virtue of the technology that's been created by the geniuses and therefore offers them more ways of growing. Um, so I, I suggest taking a look at that article about the one about Harari. Um, otherwise, I think we should wrap up. Yeah, so you want to tell people about what's happening next week? Yeah, I'll just uh, remind them uh, one more time. And I have to put the screen share back up again. Um, uh, that next week, we will have uh, Aaron Smith, Should I Follow My Head or My Heart? I believe same time, same place next week. Uh, and you can, again, sign up for that at courses.einrand.org slash webinars or bit.ly slash ARI hyphen webinars. And again, if you have a few other questions you'd like us to consider, please consider sending those to webinars at Ayn Rand. So uh, thanks, everyone. And we will we will see you all uh, hopefully in future uh, future weeks. Bye bye. Thanks, Ankar.
Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.